Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Caitlin Gill. We went out there with a team of schooled Bigfoot hunters. If you uh, think you know what a Bigfoot hunter looks like, you do. You're right. You're correct. (laughs) That and more. But before that, I just want to announce... You know, we have our Patreon page at patreon.com slash risk, where you can become a member and help keep risk running. Well, now we have something new to offer to all of our patrons at Patreon. Starting February 14th, all of our patrons will have exclusive access codes to buy tickets before everyone else can to our tour dates. Here's dates coming up where if you are a member at Patreon, you will have access codes to get tickets to these shows before everyone else. And remember, most of our our tour dates sell out now. Minneapolis, April 29th at Brave New Workshop. Denver, May 20th at the Bluebird Theater. Portland, June 9th at Revolution Hall. Seattle, June 10th at the Vera Project. Vancouver, June 11th at St. James Hall. And Washington, D.C., July 8th at the Black Cat. If you are a Patreon member of ours at patreon.com slash risk, you will have access to tickets to those shows before anyone else. You'll also have access to a pick I just took five minutes ago of me and my cat donkey and a video I'm about to make probably tomorrow. I think of me singing the stamps.com song. You'll have access to our all-star episodes, special videos that we sometimes upload our video courses, chances to meet us over Skype. There's so much to find there and you're helping us to keep the show running. Could be for as little as a dollar a month. Check it out at patreon.com slash risk. Other than that, you know you can make this Valentine's Day one you'll both never forget with this amazing offer from AdamandEve.com. Through Valentine's Day, you'll receive 50% off just about any item. Just go to AdamandEve.com. You'll find over 18,000 adult entertainment products toys, lingerie, an endless selection of adult DVDs. They have brands I love like Lilo, Roxoff, Fleshlight, Liberator, Lubes from Pure and Wet. And I haven't tried this toy, but they have it now and it looks amazing. This 50 shades darker steel G-spot and also P-spot, I'm sure, dildo. Um, I want, and my birthday is February 16th. And there's more. With every order, you'll receive a free romance kit. The romance kit includes a toy for him, a massager for her, a little something you'll both enjoy, a free adult DVD to put you in the mood. And that's not all. They'll throw in free shipping. So check out adamandeve.com today for this special Valentine's Day offer. Get 50% off one item, a free romance kit, free shipping when you enter the code RISK. That's R-I-S-K, RISK at adamandeve.com. Now here's the show.
This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and this is Oregon behind me now. We're calling this week's episode Resistors. These are three stories that were shared at Risk Live shows in December of last year, or January of 2017. And in all three cases, the storytellers felt compelled to express how they will not stop standing for a more compassionate and a more just America, in spite of political powers pushing things in the other direction right now. I mean, I don't know what news sources you read, but if you read legitimate ones, you've seen what I've seen in the past few weeks. We've seen families in crisis. And in some cases, ripped apart by the travel ban and the immigration raids. We have seen immensely powerful positions around the White House given to people who have histories of speaking publicly for white supremacist ideology. We have seen the White House on the offensive day by day attacking and subverting those parts of the system that were set in place to keep everything in check, attacking the free press, attacking the independent judiciary, attacking our right to know if our free election was fucked with by a foreign power. I mean, we are talking about the most fundamental ideals and customs of American democracy, the most fundamental laws laid down in our Constitution to keep this whole thing a democratic republic at all. All of that under attack by the White House and a Republican Party enabling them. So many of us have felt so challenged by it all so far, but that's why it's so crucial to come together and have heart-to-heart conversations with one another about our life experience. These three stories today on Risk, they show that the personal is the political and vice versa. And that's why I'm considering creating a whole new podcast separate from Risk. I'm thinking of creating a new podcast where every week I sit down with someone And we have a back and forth conversation. That person would share a personal story, a lot like the ones you'll hear on today's episode. Might be funny, might be sexy, might be scary, but there's a political dimension there, right? And we go on to talk about what that person is doing now to stay healthy and positive and active in building a better future. That person might have actions or resources that they hope other people check out in order to get in on. So this new podcast I'm thinking of, it would be like a community meeting space where we come together, we get to know each other, we remember why we're about what we're about. And my hope is that after every episode, a listener would feel like, okay, yes, yeah, we can make a difference. We can even find entertainment and enjoyment in coming together to make a difference. And we can continue to teach each other how to make a difference. So... If any of you listening out there think you might know of anyone who might be good for me to sit down and interview for this new podcast, email me 
at kevin at risk-show.com. I want to have heart-to-heart conversations with Muslim Americans, immigrants, people of color, people who have struggled with poverty or incarceration or addiction, LGBT people, community organizers, women who are concerned about Roe versus Wade and other women's issues, journalists, civil rights lawyers, and so on and so on. You know, a friend of mine said to me just yesterday, he said, hey, I know this guy. He's a construction worker from the Philippines. Someone yelled at him, go back to your own country, and threw him in front of an oncoming train in the subway the other day. I want to talk to that construction worker. I want to talk to even people who consider themselves, quote unquote, conservatives, but who prefer democracy over authoritarianism. I want to have those people contact me at kevin at risk-show.com or just email me and tell me, hey, Kev, you should reach out to so-and-so, and I will. So stay tuned for news about when that new podcast comes around. Now, our first story today comes to us from Sean Mason. This is really special. It was Sean's first time sharing a true story on stage. You know, we do it once a month at the Risk Live show at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. This is in December, right before the holidays, right before everyone was going home to see their families. She showed a hell of a lot of grace and courage in the way she shared this one. Here's Sean Mason now with a story we call Three Times. about the holidays um, from your guys response earlier I'm guessing a lot of other people are also having a hard time getting through it this year it uh, it definitely feels weird to be going through the motions of this season right now with everything that's going on in the world it feels strange to be celebrating like when we know we're in this moment that like historians are going to just pick apart later you know like 50 years from now this year will be a chapter in a textbook The holidays kind of are a time of reflection. They force us to kind of face the pain and dysfunction within our families and within ourselves. And I feel like this election has done the same thing for us as a country. It's time to have some difficult conversations. You know, we, there's really no, no more hiding from it at this point. And one of the things that I've had to think about a lot this year is women and bodily autonomy. Uh, It's been a kind of a hot topic this year and I think it's kind of a hard conversation to have because it's very difficult to explain what bodily autonomy is to someone who's always had it. When you are always in charge of you, then you don't understand that you have the option to not be. And uh, I think, I don't know, just that that governance over your person um, is something that unfortunately you can't choose to have. It relies on people respecting it and it's very easy for someone to violate it and take it from you. And this year, what I've had to kind of reckon with is the fact that as a woman, I've never really had it. Um, So this is a story about that. I was 11 years old when I was first alerted to the fact that I was fat. I had not really noticed up until that point. I mean, my mom had 
you know, bought me some bigger clothes and training bras, but I don't know, this was a time when sizing up was still neutral. I was a kid, I had been growing every year, getting a bigger size in clothing wasn't this big deal, and trying on clothes wasn't this fraught activity that left me wondering why there aren't crisis hotline numbers in dressing rooms, you know? And uh, so when the girl next door said to another girl, while we were all in a group hanging out, when she said, no, you're not fat, not like Sean, it was especially jarring because the way she said it, it was so clear to me that everyone else already knew. It was so matter of fact. Like this was not new information to anybody. And it's like I lifted up out of my body and watched myself realizing that not only was I the biggest person in my group of friends, but I was also like the last to know. And that was kind of when I first started to realize that my worth was based on my size and the way I look. And then the following school year, a boy at school told me, you know, that I was too fat to be anyone's girlfriend, but he would still fuck me because I had big titties. Yeah, charmer. Um, so I was in seventh grade when I found out that A, when it came to dating, I was on the B team. You know, I was good enough to fuck, not good enough to love. And that's something that's kind of stuck with me since then, just being second string. And uh, I also learned how my worth was tied to fuckability and that my fuckability was kind of always up for discussion whenever. It feels like, it still does feel like being in a competition I never entered with judges that I don't know who the judges are gonna be or when they're gonna score me. And as I got older, um, the sort of slow attacks on my right to be in charge of me uh, graduated beyond comments. I was 13, the first time I was grabbed by the pussy. And uh, it was by a friend of mine and he was just joking around. And I thought to myself that maybe he was flirting. I mean, he wouldn't have done that if he didn't like me, right? And then uh, shortly after my 14th birthday, I was at a friend's house and I ended up alone in a room with a guy I had been flirting with a couple days before. And when I wouldn't make out with him, he took a small knife and put it up to my neck. And even in that moment when I was terrified and nauseous from the smell of Newport cigarettes on him, I thought he's probably just joking around. And I was flattered because he wouldn't go to that extreme if he didn't really like me, right? So then by the end of ninth grade, I was dating this much older guy. He was like the coolest guy of all my friends. He was really good looking. He had a 76 Chevy Nova. He had snake bite piercings that were very big uh, 15 years ago. <laughs> and um, he also like, was, had graduated high school and you know, was still hanging out with high schoolers, hence what a cool guy he was. But um, it became apparent after a while why he always hung out with younger kids and dated younger girls, um, because there's no way that anyone his age would put up with his bullshit or fall for it. Uh, he was very manipulative and liked to play kind of weird power and control games. And um, this one day we were sitting out on the porch of his apartment with a couple other friends and he grabs my hand and says, we're gonna play a game. This is something, we've all done this. This is just, it was like an initiation of some sort, I guess. And so he grabs my hand and says, I'm gonna scratch this spot right here until you can get through the entire alphabet saying each letter and a word that starts with that letter. 
I just remember feeling like, this is weird. I don't think you guys have actually done this, but I just went with it because particularly when you're the only woman in a room with three guys, like, I don't know, speaking up is just not always um, an option. And so I just went with it. And I remember it was really muggy that day and the person in his apartment complex, I guess, had just mulched all the flower beds. And so the air was so thick and I could smell that sour mulch smell. And he grabs my hand and he's scratching right here. And I didn't think it would be that big of a deal, but when it's like repeatedly in one spot, the pain starts very quickly. And by the time I got to G for giraffe, I uh, was bleeding and I looked up at him and he was smiling and very amused with himself. And I remember as I went on and as I got to L for lanyard and M for man, the words were harder to find. The pain was getting so distracting. And I wondered if he would stop before he hit bone, if I never got to Z for zebra. And if he didn't, would I break up with him then? And I was 16 the third time that I was grabbed by the pussy. Um, It was another friend, and even though this time I was wearing a skirt, and so his fingers went inside me, I still convinced myself that he was just joking around, probably flirting. I was also 16 when I ended up in a bathroom with a boy at a party. We were making out, and he kept pushing my head down towards his crotch, and he did so so aggressively and so unrelentingly that I eventually just realized I did not really have a choice in the matter. And so I decided to give in because then it wouldn't be rape, right? And I was 18 and had just moved to Chicago and I was outside um, on the corner of my apartment building outside of a Panera Bread waiting for a friend. I was gonna flag down his cab as he went by because he had never been there before. So I was on the phone with him telling him which corner to go to and I remember it was raining in that weird misty way where it kind of feels like there's just water droplets hanging in the air and you're kind of walking through them. And so I'm kind of disoriented, it's raining, I'm on the phone, I'm looking for his cab and I feel a hand on my ass. And I assumed it was a friend of mine, you know. When you're in college, that's kind of how you greet each other. And I turned to look and it was a a man I had never seen before, probably in his 40s, seemed not very lucid. And he had his hand on my ass and went to kiss my ear and I pulled away and I'm so freaked out. And then this Panera employee had been outside taking down the patio umbrella. So he starts hitting the guy with the umbrella to beat him off of me. (laughs) Yes, true. Um, And I always used to tell that story as if it were just a funny one. Like when I would go home for the holidays and people would ask, oh my God, what it's like, what's it like living in the big city? Any crazy stories? I would tell that one, but I would always leave out the part where I had started to question if I was going to be safe in my new home. And I was 22 the third time I was grabbed by the pussy. And this was in uh, a gay dance club, which as we all know, were created to be a safe space for straight women. Uh, <laughs> And uh, this was one of many times where someone on a dance floor had groped or harassed me or followed me around. And I just don't go dancing anymore because as much as I love it, it's just not worth it. I was 23 when a man put GHB in my drink and took me back to his apartment and raped me. And it wasn't until then that I ever felt like a victim my narrative had to match the narrative we recognize as an assault victim to ever realize that I had been violated. And the next morning, I didn't realize what had happened until the next morning after I had gone home. And um, 
I was in my bathroom and realized I was bleeding. And I just remember it was this dim, windowless room, and it was like the saddest apartment. And I just remember sitting there and finally letting in the feeling of not wanting my body anymore because it no longer felt like it was mine. But even at that point, I didn't know why that feeling was so familiar. I didn't think about all these other things that had happened before. A lot of those things I didn't even consider until a couple months ago um, when the Access Hollywood tape came out of Trump and there was an outpouring of women on Twitter telling their stories of times they've been harassed or assaulted or groped. And it wasn't until then that I thought about some of these things that I hadn't thought about in years that I had kind of just put away in the corner of my mind and realized that this had been a pattern of abuse and that I've never really had control of my body. It's never really been, you know, something that I'm in charge of. And I'm 27 now, and I'm always on the lookout for the next boogeyman. And now we've elected one into the White House, unfortunately. And so now for the next four years, any time that the president has to address the nation, like if there's you know, a school shooting or a national security emergency, when I look to that lectern, I'm not gonna see Donald Trump. I'm gonna see all the men throughout my life who have taken it upon themselves to remind me that whether it's for a moment or for a night, that they are in charge, that they get to decide what happens to me. And for 14 women, at least, they will be looking at their actual attacker. So given what's going to happen on January 20th and who we are bringing into the White House, I'm just really hoping that we can at least dispense with the myth that rape allegations ruin a man's life. Thank you very much. This is Risk. 
This is the Staple Singers, one of my all-time favorite groups behind me now. And we just heard from Sean Mason. Hey, you know what? We have a show coming up on March 18th in Burlington, Vermont. It'll be our first time ever coming to Burlington, Vermont. And we need pitches. The theme that night is idiots. (laughs) which I assume most of those stories will be stories of times that the storytellers themselves felt that they behaved like idiots. Pitch us, folks, we workshop the stories with everyone who pitches us and if we like your story and choose you for the show. So, hey, take a risk right on into us and let us know at pitches at risk-show.com. You can get plenty of tips on how to pitch us at the submissions page at our site at risk-show.com. Also, you know, one great resolution you can make if you haven't made one yet for your new year is to maximize every minute and every dollar for your small business. And an easy way to do that is with stamps.com. Think about how much time you waste going to the post office, driving there, finding parking. Stamps.com is the better way to get postage. You just use what you already have, your computer and your printer to get official U.S. postage for any letter or package, then the mailman picks it up. With Stamps.com, anything you do at the post office, you can do right from your desk at a fraction of the cost of one of those expensive postage meters. We use Stamps.com at risk and the Story Studio, and we love it. So right now you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our code RISK for this special offer. It's a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in RISK. That's Stamps.com. Enter RISK. Stamps.com. Never go to the post office again. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from the amazing Caitlin Gill. I love Caitlin so much. Every time she's done the show... She's just knocked it out of the park. She told her story on the day of the Women's March, uh, the big day of the Women's March. What was that? You know, the day right after Inauguration Day. Uh, She told it at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. You'll hear how she's kind of exhausted and hoarse and everything else from having been marching all day. But before that, we're going to hear from a remarkable guy named Eddie Haka, who told his story at our recent live show, in Detroit. Here's Eddie now with a story we call Busted. It's a little more than 10 years ago, it's our son Terrell's 17th birthday, and he says, Dad, can I borrow the car? I said, you know, he's a good kid, uh, he's a summer job, he's not asking me for money, uh, I figured he's going to take his girlfriend out, but he says, no, I'm going to uh, go to the movies and take uh, his younger brother, Mike, a year younger than him. I said, alright, be home by 11.30. Figured that was a reasonable time, because when I was 17, I was going off to college, but when it came to Terrell and Mike, there was other considerations we always had to keep in mind that I didn't have to worry about decades ago when I was a teenager growing up in Detroit. You see, I'm white, Terrell and Mike are black. 
And I know they have to worry about different unwritten rules that I never had to consider. You know, because I'd seen the way people regarded them from the time they were little till their adolescence and how it changed, especially Terrell, because Terrell was always very sociable. And Terrell would always be going around with a group of friends, you know, three, four, five, six other friends, and heading up to the park to play baseball or football or basketball or soccer. And people thought it was adorable, you know, this gaggle of kids heading up to the park. But when they got to be 14, 15, 16, people didn't think it was so adorable. Why are they up at the park all the time? What are they doing up there? So, I don't know, the football might give you some idea. And when I taught them how to drive, I had to emphasize different rules for them, for Trell, Mike, Andre, than I had to for the other 12 of our children who aren't black. If you get stopped by the police, keep your hands on the wheel. Don't make any sudden moves. Always be polite. You know, tell the officer, look at my license registration right there. May I get it, please? Understand that you're responsible for everybody else in your car, so don't be driving around with any idiots. Uh, and don't talk. Keep your answer short and polite. Yes, officer. No, officer. I understand, officer. So off he went to the movies. 11.30 comes. 11.30 goes. No Terrell. I get a phone call. Dad, I got two flat tires. I'm like, two flat tires? What happened? I hit the curb. Hit the curb? How fast were you going? I said, never mind. Where are you? He tells me they're close to home. They're less than a mile away. I call AAA, I head on over, they're sitting on the curb looking miserable, and I'm pissed, and I'm letting them have it. And, uh, you know, we wait, and we wait for the tow truck. It's well past midnight now. The tow truck shows up, and there's this flatbed tow truck, and alongside comes a Detroit police car. And they put down their window, and they said, um, you know, they were called for somebody messing with a car a couple blocks away and implying that we had something to do with it. That's when I made my mistake. I started to talk. I don't know if it was because I was upset and I wanted to complain or if I was just an old white guy talking to two white cops. I forgot that the rules still apply. And I'm yap, yap, yapping as this car gets loaded up onto the uh, tow truck. And now when it's up on the tow truck, I turn to walk away. And the officer says, hold on, we need to see some ID. So I pull my ID, the boys pull out their ID, and you know they run in. Of course, there's no warrants or everything, we're cool. So I take the IDs back, I turn to walk away, and she says, hold on, gets out her ticket book, starts to write a ticket. I'm saying, what's the ticket for? You know, there's no damage to the car. They didn't hit anything except for the flat tires. And she says, curfew violation. It's like, curfew violation? Detroit is a curfew? I mean, I grew up in Detroit. When I was a 16-year-old, I was buzzing tables, washing dishes at a, the clock restaurant, you know, 24 hours. And sometimes it was slow. I'd get off at 4 in the morning and have to find my way home. I'm like, curfew? I said, well, hold on, they're with me, I'm their father. How can they be in violation of curfew? She said, yes, but you said that you came out here to help them. Therefore, before you got here, they were in violation of curfew. I'm like, shit, should have kept my mouth shut. I take the tickets, I'm like, you know, how does this work, a curfew violation? Do I, I, Mailing a check? Do I got to go to juvenile court? How do I pay this? She says, well, he goes to juvenile court, pointing to Michael. But she looks at Terrell and says, he's got to go to 36th District Court. You know, his 17th birthday it was, because, you know, happy birthday. I said, 36th District Court? He's got to go to adult court? Why has he got to go to adult court? She said, because he's 17. 
I said, well, if 17 makes him an adult, why does he have a youth curfew? She said, because he's 17. I said, but if, never mind. I took the tickets, I go to walk away, and she says, hold on. She starts to write another ticket. I said, what's this for? She said, this is for you. I said, all I did was call a tow truck. She said, you told us, you told them to be home at 11.30, which is past curfew. Therefore, you allowed them to violate curfew. And she hands me the ticket. And I look at it, and it says, parental neglect. I said, officer, we are foster parents. I get a misdemeanor for neglect. We could lose our foster care license. I said, we have little ones at home depending on us. And finally, she seemed to take a step back and pause. And she says, well, I'll be at the court. I'll ask the judge to dismiss your tickets. And I couldn't quite bring myself to say thank you. <laughs> Weeks go by. Our court hearing comes up. Trell and I go to 36th District Court. And oh, my God, what a mill that place is. Hundreds of people just pouring in to pay fees and fines and tickets and penalties. Then going to stand before a judge to pay more fines and fees and tickets and penalties. And Trell and I find our courtroom. And we're sitting there and we're watching all the other uh, cases being called and we're trying to figure out what to do because, you know, this is not all new to us. You know, I want to fight this because I think it's bullshit. But up on the wall, there's this big sign that says you can ask for, you know, a full hearing, but you got to put up money. There's fees associated with it. I'm like, shit, Cheryl, let's just pay the fine. Get the hell out of here. You can pay me back. And they call our case. We go on up there. You know, judge thinks I'm his lawyer. Uh, <laughs> You know, and he, I said, no, you know, Your Honor, I'm his father. He's a minor, so I'm up here with him, but I have a ticket as well. And um, he looks at us, makes his quick judgment, looks at the paperwork, and he starts to lecture Terrell. The decisions you make now are going to affect you the rest of your life, and if you don't turn yourself around now, and I'm like, shit, turn yourself around? By now, he's a senior in high school. He's never in school had a detention, let alone a suspension. He has no juvenile record. There's a clean driving record. Turn yourself around. Was he want him to start doing things wrong? Turn yourself around? But of course, Trell's being good. Yes, Your Honor. No, Your Honor. Yes, Your Honor. I understand, Your Honor. And he finds him 150 bucks. $150. Then he says, you'll dismiss the ticket. I was like, how do you find somebody? Then dismiss. But I'm, oh, whatever. You're dismissing the ticket. No record. I'm happy. But he says, on advisement. I'm thinking, what the hell is on advisement? In nine months. Nine months? If you meet the conditions of your probation for curfew, and these are the conditions of his probation, he has to arrange for, pay for, and take a tour of the county jail. Do the same to take a tour of the county morgue, you know, to scare him straight. He has to do 40 hours of community service, and then he's got to report to his probation officer once a month for the next nine months, missing work, missing school. So Troll goes off to find his probation officer. Now it's my turn. He looks down at me, and uh, he starts to lecture me about being a responsible parent. You can't be afraid to be firm with your children. You know, you got to get them on a straight and narrow. And I'm like, son of a, I'm 47 years old. Do you know how many children I've raised? And I'm trying to follow Charles Reed, and I'm just saying, yes, Your Honor, no, Your Honor, yes, Your Honor. And I got, you know, as a black judge, I got the distinct impression that he was looking at me and figured this old white guy has no clue about how to raise a black teenager and that he was going to straighten trail out for me and put him on a straight and narrow and I'm supposed to say thank you. So he finds me 150 bucks 
And uh, he says, you'll dismiss my ticket. I'm like, yes, on advisement, shit, in six months. And sends me to see my probation officer. So I go upstairs to see the probation officer and he looks at the paperwork and he says, this can't be right. He goes, hang on. He leaves me sitting at his desk. He goes up to the court and just talks to the judge or the clerk or whatever, and he comes down and he goes, this is bullshit. He goes, you do not have to come see me. He goes, I'll see you in six months. I'll tell them that you met the conditions of your probation. <laughs> so six months later, I come back. I have to listen to another lecture. Yes, Your Honor. No, Your Honor. Yes, Your Honor. I understand, Your Honor. And I get my ticket dismissed. Three more months of holding our breath, keeping Troll close to home and away from the car. We go to the court. Troll brings all his paperwork. And he's got everything. You know, he's uh, done the tour of the jail. He's done the tour of the morgue. He's done his 40 hours of community service, which was proved to be incredibly hard because they gave us a list of places to go, starting with Salvation Army. And we would go to each place and Troll would talk to the manager and they'd say, sorry, you can't volunteer here because you're not an adult. You're 17. I'm like, shit, here we go again. We went to each place. Finally, I literally, literally begged the manager of our local Goodwill store to please, please, please let him work for 40 hours. And this galled me to do so because I'm a union man and I know I'm making him work for free, stealing somebody else's overtime just so he doesn't have his probation extended or go to jail. So he's got his 40 hours of community service and he turns the page and the judge is looking all happy and then he gets to the last page because Terrell had to bring in his report card. And he looks at the grades and all of a sudden he gets angry. He goes, well, look at these grades. You know, how do you expect to do anything in life with grades like this? Where do you think you're... And he starts lecturing him about his grades. And I'm thinking, you son of a... You don't know shit. You don't know anything about him. I'm a teacher. I'm his father. I can't swear. My mother would yell at me. Sorry. <laughs> I said, you don't know how hard he worked for these grades. But he's up there and he's got this angry look on his face. I'm thinking, shit, he's going to keep him on probation. You know, he's going to keep him dangling on a string, waiting for some missteps so he stays involved with this crazy system. You know, I know it's just a few moments of him hesitating, but my mind is racing. I'm picturing myself up there in his position, looking at us and wondering, what is he thinking? What kind of threat is my 17-year-old, 5'7", 140 pounds son? What imminent threat does he pose for curfew violation? What does he see? Does he see the long cornrows and the pants that are too big? What does he see? Because what I see is the young man who, no matter how often Karen and Elizabeth would ask him, the little ones, to go to the park and push him on the swing, he would drop anything to take him and go push him for hours on the, on the tire swing. That's what I see. I mean, or does he see what too many police officers have seen as he walked around the neighborhood and they would stop him and frisk him, never finding anything, but it's nothing I ever had to put up with when I was a teenager. Is that what he sees? Because I see the young man who played catch with me out front, you know, pitching. He was an incredible pitcher until he got so fast that it used to scare the hell out of me. <laughs> you know, is, that's what I see. But finally, he shakes his head and he says, I don't like it, but I'm going to dismiss the charges. And so Trell and I quickly exit, get out the door, the door closes. And I said, Trell, I never want to come back here again. And he says, me neither. 
And we never did. But a few months later, it's Halloween. Uh, get a knock at the door. It's a young man from around the block. He says, Mr. Haga, Andre got picked up by the police. I said, picked up by the police for what? He says, curfew violation. I said, but Andre's 18. He said, well, that's what they said. And my wonderful wife, Michelle, went to the 6th precinct and picked him up. He comes back with a ticket that says, aiding and abetting curfew violation. This was 8 o'clock at night around the block from our house because they have this insane early curfew at Halloween. And he's 18 because he was walking with a friend who was 17. So my wife took him to the 36th District Court and luckily got a different judge and they dismissed it and said, you know, that it was ridiculous. And it is ridiculous. You know, it's ridiculous that Michigan's one of uh, nine states that 17 year olds are automatically, regardless of the charge, considered adults. And it's ridiculous we have these incredible early youth curfews criminalizing tens of thousands of kids just because they're young. You know, it's ridiculous that we have a criminal justice system that too often seems like it's more interested in just ensnaring bodies extracting revenue, and perpetuating itself. It's too interested in this than it seems to be in justice. We actually have a line that we do at our house. We practice this thing. What is it? I'm Ariel Sky Williams. I'm eight years old, I'm unarmed, and I have nothing that will hurt you. It's just kind of a thing we practice at our house. There are great police officers out there. There's also some police officers who are not so good. And my fear is that you run across one of those bad ones. Before they became a policeman, they were a person. And that person took all their ideas and all their thoughts and all their prejudice into their job. Why would a police officer assume that you did something bad? Maybe because of my skin color. I remember being put in handcuffs for something that had nothing to do with me. I was literally walking in the mall. Cops slammed me on the ground, busted my lip, chipped my tooth. That time they tased me because they said I wasn't complying. Ariel, are you okay? What's wrong, baby? I'm okay, I'm alive, all right? Every day I get to see you, I get to do this, right? All right, come on, let's calm down, let's finish this, all right? You good? Hey, you're making me cry. If he tells you to be quiet, be quiet, do everything that you can to get back to me. My name is Caitlin. Uh, I stand before you exhausted having marched. I am makeupless, like a post-election Hillary Clinton. Uh, but I couldn't uh, resist coming out tonight in spite of being a little sniffly. If I cough, I'm sorry. But I couldn't miss this. I had to tell you about the most beautiful thing that I have ever seen. Do you mind? Okay, good. I didn't think so. I saw the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life while I was Bigfoot hunting. I went Bigfoot hunting. There's a verb for it, it's called squatching. <laughs> I squatched. Uh, 
If you want to go squatching, I can give you directions. Uh, you just go north, and then you keep going north. And then you go north more until you're almost not in California. Uh, and then when you can see Oregon, you just turn right, and you keep going until there aren't roads. And then you just drive on rocks for about two hours until you get to a place called Laos Camp. Definitely not named after a person. Definitely named after lice. Uh, <laughs> that's where you go to go Bigfoot hunting. You pass through a town called Willow Creek, and that's where we picked up the rest of the Bigfoot hunters. Then we went out there with a team of schooled Bigfoot hunters. If you uh, think you know what a Bigfoot hunter looks like, you do. You're right. You're correct. <laughs> you already know. It's, uh, it was a lot of like oversized greasy black t-shirts and oversized greasy black beards. That's what was there. A lot of tough dudes. It's all dudes that go Bigfoot hunting. It's all dudes. I represent like the second vagina that's been in Bigfoot territory. The first vagina is Bigfoot's. That's... Uh, <laughs> who it belonged to. She's a lady. Her name is Patty. Uh, so I was out there with the Bigfoot hunters, and I'd like to make an important note about the Bigfoot hunters. They are otherwise aimless men. They are men that have found a purpose where there was none before. They live in a very remote part of the country, and that region affords them very little opportunity. They are essentially useless men. They are just extra. Their hands are idle. That's not good. We as a nation have seen the consequences of men without enough, enough to do, without enough to occupy them mentally. We've seen the consequences of men feeling small and useless all across the nation. These men have found a purpose, and it is Bigfoot. They live to hunt for Bigfoot. They don't have jobs. They don't necessarily have families. They don't have a lot to live for, and they've chosen this. And they passionately use all of their free time to hunt for Bigfoot, which is great because they are never going to find Bigfoot. <laughs> it's a perfect cycle. It just keeps people who needs to be busy really, really busy. That's all it is. And it's great. If that's all the myth exists to do, I am totally fine with the myth. Uh, we went up there, we met with all these dudes, and they took us out to the site where they know we were going to find Bigfoot this time. That's where it was, Laos Camp, out in the middle of Six Rivers National Forest, totally gorgeous part of the world. So, so beautiful. And we got up there, and we set up camp. Uh, we did all the traditional camp things. Uh, we had, like, a fire going, and we, had, we roasted, like, weenies, and we had, like, s'mores. Afterwards, we had a sing-along. We all sang songs. We also got a little concert from a man named Tom Yamarone. He's a real man. He is known as the Bob Dylan of the Bigfoot community. <laughs> he sang for us an album's worth of songs about Bigfoot. Some of the songs were sung in the first person as Bigfoot. <laughs> and then by request, he sang Jewel. It was amazing. <laughs> it was really beautiful. And they're so consumed by this purpose of finding Bigfoot, that they've invested a huge amount of technology into it. They use cameras that hunters use to find where big game travels, like to track their hunting trails. So the cameras aren't on all the time, but if a big animal walks by, they turn on and they take a little video. So they've taken video of tons of animals. They're showing me 
like video of bear after bear after bear hunting directly where we are standing. Just video of bear after bear after bear. And their reaction isn't panic that they are standing in an active bear hunting path. No, not at all. The reaction that the man who was showing me uh, the footage of the bears that they have captured was this. Well, you know, there's one Bigfoot for every 300 bear. So, you know, once we get to 300 bear, bam, next one's Bigfoot. You know what I'm saying? So certain that that math is flawless. This is true. Their cameras caught footage of a little animal thought extinct known as the Humboldt marmot. It's this tiny little like snow white mink looking thing that it's hard to see because it's white and gray and in the middle of white and gray, but it managed to trip one of their cameras. They caught footage of a truly non-existent animal. Like they really did capture footage of the myth and like their response as a group was not like, can you believe it? We found an extinct animal. What, what an achievement for science. No, they were just so excited. Well, if we can find the marmot, I mean, they thought that was extinct. We know Bigfoot's not extinct. <laughs> so again, it's just a matter of time. Uh, so that's where we've set up camp. That's where our campfire is, in the middle of an active bear hunting ground. There are also cougars around, which I know because I saw pictures of cougars in some of the footage they had taken. And I got very excited because I like cats, and this was a big cat. And they were excited that I was excited, so they named one of the cougars that they found after me. They give them all names. There is a cougar in the Humboldt forest known as Caitlin, who just walks around... <laughs> that had cubs this year. I'm very proud of her. <laughs> and for a little while, I really fought being the cougar named Caitlin. It's a mountain lion, but I've given in. It's just a cougar named Caitlin uh, that roams the forest. So it's, an it's full of wildlife that is all dangerous, and none of it is Bigfoot. Um, that's where we're setting up camp. That's where we enjoyed the concert. And it was Tom Yammerone, as uh, the night had fallen, it was very dark, Tom Yammerone stood up and announced that it was time for our night's big activity. We were going to go on a night hike to look for Bigfoot. Because apparently the best time to see a dark-furred wood creature <laughs> is on a moonless night under a forest canopy. Uh, but that's what we did, set off into the woods, so excited to see Bigfoot. And we did, we walked and we walked, and it was so gorgeous. It's just one of the most beautiful places in the world up there. We walked and walked along the trail, and uh, we were clever. We didn't want to go without bait. You know, Bigfoot needs bait too. So we cooked up some bacon before we left. <laughs> and we dropped it on the trail behind us, like full pieces, just dropped it on the trail behind us, because as Tom told us, well, Bigfoot loves bacon. You know what, even if Bigfoot loves, does love bacon, you know what else loves bacon is every other predator that's real and currently hunting in the forest. <laughs> so we just left a trail of meat to our meat-filled bodies. <clears throat> and we walked on, and the night was so beautiful and our eyes adjusted like they do on a night hike, and we were all able to turn off our dorky headlamps, and we were just walking in the gorgeous shadows of the trees. And uh, we noticed a little break in the woods, uh, and we stepped into a meadow, and the sky opened up above us. So it was just stars everywhere, and uh, just green grass below, truly gorgeous. Uh, but that was not the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen. Tom Yammerone turned to the group and said, okay, it's time to call for Bigfoot. 
you know, Bigfoot smells the bacon, but, you know, Bigfoot's going to need a call before she comes. So we're going to have to call out to her. This is what he did. He reached down and he grabbed two sticks and then he clacked them together. Clack, clack, clack. And then he hooted into the night. Woo! Woo! Okay, that's how you do it. You know, uh, you can do it too. I'll clack and you woo. Are you ready? Clack, clack, clack. That's good. You're good squatchers. <laughs> we could find her tonight. It might happen. I didn't want to tell you, but I left some bacon outside the door. She might be here right now. That was a lot of fun. We're out there in the grass, and it's a beautiful night, and the stars are above us, and we all picked up sticks, and we're all clacking, and we're all wooing, but that's not the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Uh, I didn't see the most beautiful sight I have ever beheld until I slowed down. And I stopped to look at what Tom Yamarone was doing. And this is what I saw. Every time Tom Yamarone clacked and hooted, he stopped. He stopped and he just held stock still until he just turned his head <coughs> just a little bit. God damn it. Get to the peak of the story, Caitlin, the real heart of it, before your body gives out and you're unable to continue. <laughs> yeah, are they, are they in your hand emotionally? Great. Lose control of your body physically. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you. I should have called in sick to the march, but you can't do that shit. Okay. So Tom Yamarone clacks, and he woos, and then for him, time stops. And he leans over, and he turns his ear out to the night, and he listens. Tom Yamarone listened as hard as he could after every call. Do you understand what that means? That means that every time Tom Yamarone hooted out into the night for Bigfoot, he honestly, in his heart of hearts, believed that Bigfoot was going to answer back to him every time. And every time it didn't happen, which was every time, <laughs> Tom Yamarone just stood up and said, Huh. as if he expected the positive outcome every time. Every single time. That's beautiful. That's the most beautiful thing I have ever seen. A man calling out into the night for a beast that does not exist and opening his heart up to the answer yes, holding it open and hoping. And when it doesn't come, he's not sad. He's not even disappointed. He's not even really that surprised. He's just, huh? huh. That's gorgeous. Every time that man called out to Bigfoot, it was just human light pouring out of his mouth. That's beautiful. That's the kind of shit we need to get through this terrible fucking world. This faith that it's all going to be okay, even though we can see it's probably not. I know. I need that faith. I got an emotional support animal in November. I'm not doing great. I know. <laughs> I need that faith. I am 35 years old, six foot one, 220 pounds with A cups, and I still believe I can make it in entertainment. 
I know I need that faith in the morning when I get up and the world's weight is on my shoulders and I'm scared I'm not going to make it. I just look at my bank account balance and I just stand up and I give it a, huh. Never stop believing in your dreams, especially the ones that won't come true. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is MadCon featuring Ray Dalton behind me now. And we just heard from Caitlin Gill. And before that, a little interstitial put together by our episode editor, Jeff Barr, from a YouTube video you can find. Let's see what the exact title of it is here. It's Black Parents Explain How to Deal with the Police to Their Kids. It was put together by Watch Cut Video. Man, is that a powerful video. Well, we've hit our first goalpost with Patreon, guys. We're up to $1,000 a month coming from you guys to support the show. Oh my gosh, that means I have to make a Stamps.com video for the patrons. And let's go to $2,000 a month. Let's go, let's go, let's go. Be sure to visit us at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash risk and become a member. It's a lot of fun, and you can help keep us running. Now let me list all the places we are coming very soon. On February 17th, we will be back in Carborough, North Carolina at the Art Center there. Holy shit, that's going to be a great show. Eddie Brill will be there. Zach Ward, Ray Christian will be back, and Devin McNichols on February 18th. February 18th, we're back in Los Angeles at the Bootleg Theater. Scott Thompson of Kids in the Hall will be there. And Paul Gilmartin of the Mental Illness Happy Hour. That is going to be a hell of a show. On February 22nd, we're back at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Another great lineup there. Holy shit. I'll be bringing out a new story, I think, on February 22nd at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Let's see, on March 18th, you already know we're in Burlington, Vermont. Burlington on March 18th. The theme is Idiots, 
And you can still pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions for our March 18th Burlington show. Keep in mind, we'll also be in Minneapolis on April 29th, April 29th at Brave New Workshop for Minneapolis. The theme that night is action, action. And we are taking pitches, so riskdeshowcom slash submissions. Then on May 20th, May 20th, we are in Denver, Colorado. The theme that night is irresistible. So pitch us, folks. Pitch us for the irresistible show in Denver, Colorado at riskdeshowcom slash submissions. On June 9th, we're in Portland, Oregon. The theme is hype. On June 10th, we're in Seattle. The theme is destructive. And on June 11th, we are in Vancouver. The theme is monster. Pitch us at risk-show.com slash submissions. Folks, today's the day. <laughs> Take a risk. On the rooftop, surrounded by the stars and the views high. Ain't nobody thinking about what you got. Everything's ours. Want to dip, get a new spot. Yeah. yeah. Don't worry, don't worry. Night never ends. No hurry, no hurry. Shorty look thick so the lines get blurry. In the night so your balls or we might get dirty. DJ, let the beat play. Make a heat wave when you replay this. Tonight we going party like it's D-Day. Young and free saying it's the one on my CK shit. The moon is the light. The sky is the ceiling. The low is the pace and the high is the feeling. The world is the club bowling. Cause we can this one for the books. Don't worry about a thing. I don't believe in Sasquatch, but at the same time, I don't want to be inflammatory. So if I'm out looking for a Sasquatch, I think I want to try to call out to one, be a little bit of a yoo-hoo. Hello, Mr. Sasquatch, come find me. It became my yodel, which of course is just a little bit of a It hasn't worked yet.